Well, good morning. Last week we had a congregational uh, meeting, didn't we? Was that last week? I have a hard time remembering weeks. I think that was last week. And we voted for John Berger to become an associate pastor. And I hope that you saw the announcement of that in this week's email. But for those of you who don't uh, spend time looking at the church email, and I know there are a couple of you. The results were 98 to 0, and so lots of love was shown for, for our assistant and soon-to-be associate pastor, John Berger, and so I, for one, am very grateful for that. And so just so you know, I say soon-to-be, officially, John will be an associate pastor with us upon his installation as associate pastor, which is technically required of us to do, because there are some changes in the, the wording of the questions that we ask of you as a congregation uh, of, of in regard to his ministry, and so that will take place, Lord willing, on November 9, is what I would imagine. So just so you know about that, and uh, we're looking forward to that. This morning we're in Hebrews, again, chapter 12, and it's in your bulletin on page 6, or in your Bible on page whatever it is in your Bible. You can look on either of those, and one of the most quotable quotes in Modern Christian history is one that I'm sure that you've heard, and it goes like this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Of course, Jim Elliot in 1949, and seven years later, having gone to Ecuador as a missionary, he would, in fact, give his life in order to gain heaven. He would have given up what he could not keep in order to gain what he could not lose. And this writer to the Hebrews says something similar here. He says to his friends, Before you turn away from Jesus, remember that what cannot be shaken cannot be lost. Don't forget that before you decide to turn away from Jesus. And this is what he says to them, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give to us your spirit again, because if you don't, then we will just have jumbled words rattling around in empty minds. But if you give us your spirit, then we will, by your grace, be able to see and comprehend and apprehend for our own good, your good news in Jesus. Would you do that for us? In his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the shadow of the Ebola scare that's kind of swept through Dallas and therefore much of our country, there actually was another societal crisis which was quietly remembered this week. Maybe you took some note of it and remembered that 25 years ago, on October 17, 1989, the Bay Area of Northern California was in the midst of World Series baseball euphoria because it was the first ever Bay Area series between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. So if you're not a sports fan, let me help you to understand. That was a, a unique moment in the history of sports. It hadn't happened quite that way that, that two teams of such close proximity would play together in the World Series. And so there was all kinds of excitement about that. And on October 17, in the midst of that series, Game 3 was about to begin. The Oakland A's had won the first two games in Oakland, and they had come to San Francisco now for Game 3. And in the moments before the game began a magnitude 6.9 earthquake shook the entire region of Northern California and the Bay Area. The stadium, of course, was damaged somewhat, not destroyed, but damaged. And the game was postponed because of obvious reasons of safety and so on. But because of the effects of the earthquake in the whole area and the damage that was done, the lives that were taken... The game was actually postponed out of respect for all that for 10 days. A friend of mine was at the time, a high school friend of mine, was a football player at Stanford University about 30 minutes south of that stadium. And on that day, he remembers being on the practice field at football. And he said that that green, grassy, flat practice field became as the green waves of the ocean rolling into the beach. The earth shook, and the world took notice. You know, for all the shaking that we know figuratively in our lives and in the world around us, we are oddly enough surprised by it when it comes. You know, whether it's an earthquake or whether it's an infectious disease or a death in the family even, the fact is the world that is broken by the fall is going to be and is shaken by the effects of the fall. Always, inevitably, it's going to be that. The Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written were shaken by the instability of the world in which they lived, the Roman Empire, which was no friendly place for Christians to be in that day and age. And these people knew hardship. In fact, this writer had written to them, about their hardship and acknowledged it to them. And so the previous verses that we saw last week regarding God's discipline of His people, he, he encouraged them to consider their hardship as God's discipline, as His child training 
for them, in love for them, and he says to them, see to it that none of you fails to obtain the grace of God by defaulting. He doesn't use that word, but I think this is what he means. By defaulting to bitterness, by defaulting to sexual temptation, by defaulting to the self-indulgence of Esau, he uses that example, by defaulting. Don't decline the grace of God by defaulting. Now, we all have a default mode, and I think you know what that means. You know enough about computers, even if you're not as technically savvy as, as some. You know what a default mode is. It's, it's that mode in which you fall back into just automatically. And we all have a default mode for when we face hardship. We fall back into some default. And he's telling these Christians, don't fall into default. Because your default might be bitterness. It might be sexual temptation. It might be all sorts of self-indulgence in the face of hardship. He says, don't fall into default mode because you've not come to law, but to grace. You've not come to the instability of moral striving, but rather to the unshakable gospel that is in Jesus. And he wants to persuade his friends of this truth. He does it in several ways. One of them is, by showing them a contrast between ways of walking. Okay, so Israel walked and walked and walked. You know, the Old Testament people of God, Israel, they walked and walked and walked. They walked through the Red Sea as they made exit from Egypt. They walked into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And they walked on for years and years, for decades in fact, to the promised land, and the Hebrews are walking too, figuratively. He's told them, you're on the hard path of grace. You're, you're walking as Christians on a path. As the Israelites had approached God in the Old Testament in a certain way and at a certain time in redemptive history, so also these Hebrew Christians had approached God at a certain time and in a certain way, and so also do we. But... He says to them and to us, don't be confused by the contrast between old and new. Christians are often confused by that. We're often confused by the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Covenant, as we call it, and the New Covenant, or the law and the gospel. We we get confused by the contrast between those things, but some theologian coined a very helpful and poetic phrase, which, which helps us to understand a bit better. He said it this way, The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed. That is, the new covenant, the blessings of the gospel, are concealed in the old covenant, the Old Testament. For example, the the law, the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai were a tangible, touchable even, expression of future hopes to be fulfilled in Christ. Likewise, the temple sacrifices that this writer to Hebrews spends lots of time explaining, the temple sacrifices were a tangible and touchable expression of future hopes to be fulfilled in Christ. Even the kings of the Old Testament who would rule, Lord willing, in righteousness and justice over God's people, those kings were a tangible and touchable expression of 
future hopes to be fulfilled in Christ. In other words, the new is in the old concealed. But also the old is in the new revealed. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is revealed and made more clear in the new. It's not dismissed. It's made more clear. Jesus said it this way. He said, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And then he went on to say things like this. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that even your angry heart is the same as that. In other words, the old is in the new revealed. The old is made more clear in the new. And this writer wants to, to present this through a metaphorical picture of these mountains that he describes in these opening verses of this passage. You know, Mount Sinai, he doesn't even need to name it because the way he describes it is so clear to his readers who would have known exactly what he was talking about. And then Mount Zion, that hope of hopes about which God's people sang in the Psalms for ages and ages, looking forward to Mount Zion and the hope of heaven. And if you walk to the first mountain without having your sights set on the second mountain, what you get is fear. What you get is something untouchable, something that's burning and dark and gloomy, a tempest storming about, an unbearably loud sounds, trumpet and voice, as he describes it here. But if you walk to the second mountain without having ever known of the first, what you get is confusion. On CNN this past week, I saw an interview with an atheist academic who was talking about the rise of Islam in the world, and he was expressing his frustration from an atheist perspective, his frustration with our government and our culture and society and its hesitation to offend Islam by calling the negative aspects of it Islamic. And this was an atheist speaking and, and expressing frustration over that. And I thought, well, that's interesting to hear him say that. But then he went on to explain, he said, look, all the other religions have lightened up. I mean, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, they've all lightened up. You know, no Christian, he said, actually takes Leviticus seriously anymore. And so why should we expect the same of Islam? That was his reasoning. If you walk to the second mountain of grace without ever seeing the first mountain of law, then all you have is confusion. On the one hand, God requires perfection from you if you go to the first mountain alone. And that's a terrifying prospect. But on the other hand, if you go to the second mountain alone, all that God requires of you is nothing. And that's an empty and feeble fantasy. The reality is that a Christian comes to Zion after meeting Sinai. That is, after fearing the holiness of Sinai, he rejoices. He rejoices in the grace of Zion that mountain upon which the living and the heavenly and the festal gathering of saints in Christ is found. And the writer says, look, friends, it would be absurd to go back to the first, having arrived at the second. But we want to go back. You know, it's just the way our hearts work. We, we actually want something that we can touch. We want to be told what to do. 
it's just sort of a part of our nature that, that we want to be given rules and we want to make rules, and so we make them up. Um, at elder training a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Christians' relationship to the law and, and what it has to do with the gospel and, and the two polar effects that Christians and, and any, anybody really takes in regard to law. One of those being that either you're a legalist, you love the law and you try hard to obey it, or you're the opposite of that, which is a word called that is antinomian. That literally means against law. You are opposed to law. In other words, you don't think that it applies to you. You're, those are the two opposite extremes. And, and we talked about, you know, which one of those are you more inclined to be? Because we, we all kind of swing on the pendulum one way or another. And I realized in talking about that, I, I said, you know, I think in regard to myself, I'm an antinomian. I really don't think the law applies to me. But in regard to you, I'm a legalist. Because I want to expect things of you that I don't want to require of myself. We want to make things up. We want to be able to touch something because we want to go back to the first mountain. And so he gives this contrast. He says, look, friends, you have not come to Sinai. That's not where you finally arrived. Where you have arrived is Zion, Mount Zion. And when God's people gather together, they don't gather under the moralistic law, but rather they gather at Zion with a mediator of a new covenant, and there you find others. You find an assembly of the firstborn, of those who are enrolled in heaven, he says. You find the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The old is in the new revealed, in that you and I are heirs to their prayers. We're actually connected to these people of whom he writes here. We're connected to the church of ages past, and we are the heirs to the grace that they experience, to their prayers, to their sufferings, to their labors of all of these ancient ones who the writer has already told us walked by faith, by faith, by faith, therefore, remember, we're heirs of all that. These who walked by faith to Zion by way of Sinai, you cannot walk up to God by moral performance, he says. He's called you to come by grace. So then he actually begins to persuade them in another way. He, he says uh, to them of this unshakable gospel, you've got to see it because of a voice from the height of heaven. At Zion, you've come not only to this festal gathering, but he brings in this notion of blood again, which is such a common theme in this letter. He says, you've come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks. It's a bit different from the booming voice of Sinai. There back in Exodus, you read this passage there in Exodus 20 where the people are actually afraid to hear any more of, of God and they tell Moses, Moses, you speak to us. We can bear your voice. We can't bear up under the voice of God. That scene in Sinai where God's holy power is now revealed in this extension of grace. That through the blood of Jesus, he speaks. And by that grace, he speaks a serious warning to us, doesn't he? He says in verse 25, See that you do not refuse the one who's speaking. And who is it who's speaking? Well, it's Jesus. It's by His 
blood. And he explains, if Israel didn't escape God's warning from the mountain, then how will any escape God's warning from heaven? And this voice of warning speaks to unbelief. Not just in non-Christians, but in Christians too. You know, it speaks a warning to the, to the unbeliever, to the skeptical, to say, look, don't refuse the gospel when it's spoken to you. Don't turn it away because you should know your own heart. You know that you make laws for yourself and for others. And you apply it in strategic ways that helps you because you know right from wrong. You live by your laws and you fail by your laws. And on whose authority have you established those laws? Don't refuse him who's speaking to the skeptic. For the Christian, it's similar. It's a a warning to say, look, don't refuse him. Don't go back to the first mountain. Don't go back to your guilt simply because to you it seems that grace is too good to be true. Don't go back. It's, it's somewhat of a warning to that. Because when you see the holiness of God in gospel light, unexpected things happen. Jay Sklar is a professor at Covenant Seminary, a professor of Old Testament. And when he was doing his his academic studies and Ph.D. work, his specialty was the book of Leviticus, much to the dismay of that CNN atheist, I'm sure. And he spent 10 years studying Leviticus. And he's written about that. He's, he's written, you know, things happen when you spend 10 years studying Leviticus, and it's not what you might think. He says it's not that you have to go to a psychotherapist. He said, the things that happen when you study Leviticus for 10 years, when you put yourself up alongside the law with the light of the gospel, he said what happens is you begin actually to hunger for God's holiness more frequently. And you begin to fear God more greatly. And you begin to love Jesus more deeply. And you actually begin to love your neighbor more fully. When you see the law in the light of the gospel, good things actually happen. And and this writer says, look, don't refuse the one who's speaking to you. It's a serious thing to refuse a holy God. But his voice is not just warning. It's also a gracious word. You know, he says that blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's he's referring to, to some of the allusions he's made to the Old Testament earlier in this Letter, You know, that blood of Abel cried out for justice, and the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. The blood of Abel accuses. You you remember the story. You know, God came to Cain, who had killed his brother, and said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, Cain. But the blood of Jesus forgives. If the blood of Abel accuses, the blood of Jesus Forgives In Hebrews 9, we read back there of how Jesus entered into the presence of God. How? By His own blood, securing redemption for us. And in Hebrews 10, that by the blood of Jesus, we have actually 
confidence to enter into God's presence. That's an astonishing thought. That's something that the the old covenant people would never have imagined, to have confidence to enter into God's presence. No, that's not possible. But again, remember how the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. He speaks blessing to you. This is what he does. You know, the, the humor of Balaam, you, you heard earlier in the Old Testament reading, it's, it's, it's really kind of a, a funny picture of this man who's on a donkey that speaks to him, and he's been requested by the enemies of Israel to curse them because the Israelites are, are wandering towards the promised land, and God is giving them success, and the people of the land are afraid of them, and they request of this man Balaam to curse them. But God commands Balaam to bless them. And he gives this, this curse, which is a blessing, to the people. You heard it a while ago. Basically what he says is, God has made them strong. And those who have hired him to curse are frustrated by it. You know, the, the world would curse you. That's what you would hear from the world and from those out and about and around you. The world would curse you, but the voice from the height of heaven, stubbornly even, blesses you. I don't know if you recognize your own pattern of life and and seeing whether it's, it's your own failure in different ways and your expectations of God and His dealings with you and how that changes over the course of time and how you expect some dreadful result from some circumstance in your life, and yet what you find in retrospect is how God has blessed you. And then you fail again and again. You see how God has blessed you in the midst of failure. You know, do you ever feel like you don't deserve what you get? You should. Because what you will get is not what you deserve. What you will get from the voice from heaven is blessing. And so listen Listen to the blood of Jesus. And so he persuades them still even more, lastly, with a kingdom for ages to come. He wants to persuade them of this unshakable gospel. And he refers in verses 26 and following to to an odd little phrase from an odd little prophet, Haggai. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. That is, back at Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake heaven and earth. And he's drawing from the prophet Haggai. Haggai prophesied to God's people in the midst of the Israelites returning from exile. They had returned to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild all that had been broken and lost in ages past. And I want to read you this passage from Haggai. This is fascinating to hear. This is what he says. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is God's word coming through Haggai. Work, he says, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. It's all mine, he says. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, 
And in this place, I will give peace. God's speaking to his people in their discouragement of having come back to a broken city and longing to rebuild the temple and the walls and the glory of what they thought of as Zion. And God comes to them and says, look, don't worry. I'm with you because I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and everything is going to change. The glory of this place will be greater in the future than it ever was in the past. The old will be in the new revealed, he says. But it's more than just worship in the temple. A few weeks later, God gave word to Zerubbabel, oddly a named uh, governor of the Israelites at the time. And, And his word to him was this. He says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the kingdoms, he says. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow them. In other words, he's speaking in the future of the coming of the kingdom of God. And this writer to the Hebrews draws out Haggai's odd little prophecy about shaking the heavens and the earth and says, we have this promise that soon he will do this. It's the coming of the kingdom of God. And for us, it it brings about, it should naturally, a grateful reception of it. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. American Christians have a hard time getting this. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you in this. We have a hard time getting this because we're too content with our own little empires. This past week, uh, John and I went over to Redeemer Seminary to hear a professor, Michael Goheen, speak about the worldwide church. And he explained there that sociologists have been saying this for some time. He said that they explained that the days of the Western And actually, I would add the northern Christianity, emphasis of Christianity and the numerical uh, uh, strength of Christians in the western and the northern hemispheres. He says, that's ended. Now, if if you don't know your geography, we're among those. We live in the, the west and the north. He says, that's ended. That's over. And the days of eastern and southern Christianity has dawned. That is in Africa and Latin America and Asia. That's where the numerical center of Christianity is now and will be in the future. And we have much to learn from that. He said there are lessons. He he said he's asked Christians from other nations, Korea especially, he said, he's asked them, what do you see in North American Christians that we we don't see ourselves that we ought to know and and be able to self-evaluate? He said the answer that they hesitantly give, but honestly they say, is you're too rational. You've got to have reasons for everything. And you're too individualistic. You're just concerned about yourselves. Now they're talking to American Christians, not to American society. You're too individualistic. They say you're too dualistic. That is, you, you imagine that your religion is here on Sunday, and then the rest of the week is all, it's, pretty, it's yours to do whatever you want. And you're too individualistic. He says you're too spiritual. In other words, you just look forward to heaven in some, some odd way that you don't even know, some nebulous form in the future, rather than recognizing that God is at work on this earth now. The interpretation of that, I would say, is that we have a lack of gratitude because we're too busy building our own kingdoms, kingdoms that can and will be shaken 
He says, no, forget those kingdoms here. And with your gratitude, enter into joyful worship. So he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. Acceptable. You know, he actually says, offer to God acceptable worship. The implication is that there is worship that's not acceptable. You do know that, right? I mean, there are, there are plenty of examples in Scripture where people came to God and offered unacceptable worship. They, they, they did it in their own way rather than according to what God had commanded, and that doesn't end well. You can't just do anything in worship. God is holy, and worship is according to His instruction. There is reverence, and there is an awestruck nature of it. And because of these, I would say it is actually joyful. Because the Maker of heaven and earth Himself has given us the privilege of entry into His presence. He's given us instructions on how to do that, how how to come, come to me, he has said. Come to me in this way. For us, the old revealed in the new is we come through Jesus, through the through the new mediator of the new covenant. We come to him through that and it's joyful worship. You know, I don't think that the ages to come will be filled with just an eternal church service. I don't think that's what heaven is. I think the, the new heavens and the new earth are that our worship will be the vocation of serving in a kingdom that is unshaken forever by the effects of the fall. And we'll do it with reverence and with awe and full, full of joy. This writer wants his friends to believe. He wants them to believe the gospel. He wants them to, to recognize that they're potential choice of another so-called gospel is one that will simply be shaken down and disappear in the end, as is every kingdom that is not of God himself. You know, what are history's great kingdoms? There are lots of them throughout history. If, If you are a historian, or even if you're not, you've heard of many of these. You know, they all, they all have one thing in common among all of their diversity and variety they all all the great kingdoms of history have one thing in common they've all disappeared and every one to come will disappear you know the the persian empire and the macedonians of of ancient old testament times the roman empire in which these hebrew christians lived which they surely could only imagine was the rule of the world forever The Islamic caliphates of the early Middle Ages, there were such things, and some in the world want to see them return. The dynasties of the Far East, the Spanish Empire, the Portuguese. Do you know that even little Portugal had an empire for a while? Do you know that? The the Germans established what they might call an empire a hundred years or so ago. The British, of course, had that empire upon which the sun would never set, and accurately it didn't until the empire ended. You know, where are the great kingdoms of men now? Even our little country has had a few good years, some good decades, a couple of good centuries even, but even our little country is no gospel hope because in Christ, Yahweh will shake what cannot last. And in Christ, all that will last is ours. So let us be grateful. 
For we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and so offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe, for He is indeed a consuming fire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray again that You would grant to us wisdom, grant to us understanding and insight by Your Spirit, so that we might together walk in Your way by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.